Alright, uh, so we're continuing on uh, our series in, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, that's one of the, the four biographies uh, about Jesus in, in the New Testament. Uh, they, they give us a, a record of the entire life of Jesus. And, and even though we've got four reasonably short biographies, you can read them in an afternoon, that's, that's what we have written about Jesus from the first century. Uh, it, it's strange that that's all, all we have right from that time and yet... Jesus is the most influential person in all of human history. Uh, more books have been written about him than any other figure. Some good, plenty terrible. More, more paintings have been done of him than anyone else in history. Again, some good, plenty terrible. Um, even, even our dating system, BC and AD, it completely revolves around Jesus arriving on earth. But despite his, his massive influence... Uh, everyone seems to have differing opinions as to who Jesus is. And, and what's strange is that very, pe- very few people are actually neutral. Everyone seems to have an opinion about who Jesus is, what his mission is, what he came to do, what he was really all about. And I found that um, yeah, especially true uh, on, on uni campuses and then when I was at work as well. You'd, you'd ask a, a Muslim um, and they would say, well, Jesus was just a prophet. Nothing like he, he was a holy man, a holy prophet of God. But he wasn't God. And then, then if you ask uh, a Buddhist or specifically the, the Dalai Lama uh, speaks of the life of Jesus saying that he, he gradually uh, enlightened over several reincarnations uh, and eventually reached a, a higher state of existence. Um, don't know where he got that from within the Gospels, but that's, that's what he believes. Um, but and I've spoken to, to people from the, the Socialist Alliance at unis and, and they'll tell you that Jesus is on their side, that Jesus was a political revolutionary. Uh, and he was actually killed for his radical ideas about overthrowing uh, the, the religious uh, Jewish authorities and, and, and the Roman political leaders. And even plenty of atheists still have an opinion about who Jesus is, that he was a, a good moral teacher and, and, and nothing more. That, that's all he was, was just a, a nice guy, maybe a bit of a hippie, peace-loving hippie, and that, that's about all there was, was to him. But what's interesting, yeah, if everyone seems to have an opinion about him. If, no one is neutral. And especially in light of the massive claims that we're going to see today that Jesus makes about himself, you can't be neutral. Either he's, he's telling the truth and he is who he claims to be or he's making some massive uh, false claims about his identity. But I'm not interested today in asking you about how you feel about Jesus and, and what, who you think he is. We're going to go to the word of God and see what Jesus said about his own mission, his own identity. And then after that, we can then look at the different ways in which people respond. Uh, So, yeah, if you've got your Bibles, turn in in, uh, Luke chapter 4, and it was starting at verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So according to this passage, Jesus had already been preaching elsewhere around Capernaum. But for some reason, Luke chooses this uh, specific narrative to, to start off Jesus' ministry. And it gives us a little bit of an, an insight as to what a regular synagogue service looked like. You know, uh, someone would get up and, and give a, a various readings from, from Scripture... Uh, followed by someone commenting on it or explaining it. 
And that format, as you can probably tell, has influenced the church all the way up until now. This is still how we do uh, expositional preaching. We read through the scriptures and then someone comes and explains it. And here we see that the specific passage was chosen by Jesus. Uh, so look down in verse 17. It says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, reco- and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So that's a quotation from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. Huge messianic passage. It, it would have been really well known to all the people in the audience. Uh, in, in the synagogue, it, it was a well-known passage, specifically within a well-known section of Scripture. All of the latter chapters of Isaiah, it's all about God's prophecies of, of sending a suffering servant, a, a Messiah, someone who would come and save his people. So, so none of that is, is very controversial just yet. Getting up in a synagogue and reading out that passage, no problems just yet. And then verse 20, it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is absolutely huge. Think about this for a moment. You're you're a first century Jew. You've had hundreds of years of prophets coming to your nation, proclaiming and prophesying that a Messiah would come. Year after year after year. And then all of a sudden, nothing. Silence. There's no more prophets, no more revelation, nothing for 400 years, just waiting. But you still keep meeting together. You and your people and your nation meet together every single week, reading from scriptures about this coming Messiah. But nothing happens until finally you're in your building, in, your, in, your, in, a, in a synagogue in your own hometown. Some guy that you, that you, you saw grow up, uh, you know, a carpenter's son, gets up, reads out this amazing prophecy and says, yep, that, that's me. This is being fulfilled today, right here in your midst. Would have been huge, scandalous, controversial, amazing good news. See, this is why Jesus can't be a mere moral teacher or a political revolutionary. It's huge claims to be the Jewish Messiah. But even in light of this really clear and obvious truth, there's still lots of confusion as to, as to what that means. Even among Christians, we still, uh, still differ in what we think Jesus' mission truly was. So let's step back and go through this quotation from Isaiah. It will give us the exact mission of Jesus. So firstly, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's so much there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And and although this is a quotation from Isaiah, but but this is actually a a running theme in the Gospel of Luke, the the role of the Spirit working in people's lives and even in the life and ministry of Jesus. So let's think about what we've seen so far of the Spirit of God. So in the opening chapters we saw the Holy Spirit had to come upon Zechariah to prophesy about John the Baptist. And then the Holy Spirit came upon Simeon and he prophesied about Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit filled John the Baptist in the womb. 
and then the Holy Spirit came and overshadowed Mary, leading to the virgin birth. So there's obviously a, a running theme here, but a lot of that actually seems pretty normal to us. Maybe not the virgin birth part, where we're not, you know, that doesn't happen all the time around here, but, but we're familiar with and we know that the Holy Spirit needs to work in us because we're in need of change, we're in need of empowerment from the Holy Spirit. But, but what's a, a lot harder to get our heads around is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. So even so far already in this gospel, we've seen the Spirit at work. At Jesus' baptism, where he begins his uh, public ministry, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then when he goes into the wilderness to be tempted, he was led by the Holy Spirit. And then he returned to Galilee in power of the Spirit. Everywhere he goes, he's being led by the Spirit. And, and here in this passage, it says that he's been anointed by the Spirit to fulfill the work of the Messiah. But how does, how does that work? He's, he's God, right? So he doesn't need fixing or, or transformation like we do. He shouldn't need help or, or even empowerment. Well, the, the answer is sort of. And, and there are definitely going to be things here that, that you and I just can't wrap our heads around. Um, I was talking with Phil last week about the incarnation and what it meant for an all-knowing God to step into humanity and learn how to talk, how to learn a language, even though he's the all-knowing God. I still struggle to wrap my head around that. And in the same way, we have the all-powerful God stepping into humanity, humbling himself in the form of a human and being empowered by the Spirit, even though he's God. And I think the way in which we can wrap our heads around this is seeing that in some ways he's a lot like us and other ways he's not like us. And I think the perfect example of that was what John spoke about a couple of weeks ago with Jesus' baptism. On the one hand, he's like us. On the other hand, he's not like us. He doesn't need to be baptised in the same way that we do. We Having a baptism of repentance or or going down in the water, representing our old life being put to death and being raised up in newness of life. But on the other hand, he is just like us. He, he was baptised as an act of obedience to model for us what it means to do the works that we're called to do. The only difference is that he does it perfectly. So in the same way, Jesus doesn't need the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need fixing but he does this to reveal to us what it means to live a life being led by the Holy Spirit. And again, he does this perfectly. And as I was going through this passage, I was, I was struggling with it. I was struggling to write this section of the sermon of what it meant for Jesus to, to live by the, and be led by the Spirit. And I was struggling to think of ways in which we can do the same. And, and the, the irony was that I was really struggling and trying to write this section of the sermon in my own strength, not praying about it, not being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's my tendency, to try and do things in my own strength, my own abilities, thinking I can control things, thinking I can make things work, I can change things and I can accomplish things if I just put my, my mind to it. But I can't. I can't even write a sermon in my own strength. I need the empowerment of the Spirit. I do the same thing with, with battling sin. How do you go in, in growing in holiness? I know it's a tendency for me to go, well, I just need to try really hard. And if that doesn't work, I'll try even harder. Does anyone else do that? 
How does that work? It's not working out, is it? And, but that's our, that's our tendency. That, that's why we need constant reminding of the grace of God, and that's why we need constant reminding that we cannot do things in our own strength. We need the Spirit. I do the same thing with evangelism. I stumble over my own words, and most of the time I think about what I should have said about three hours later. But instead we should be led by the Spirit in everything that we do. We cannot even share the Gospel without the Spirit giving us the words that we need to say. And I, I mentioned this, this earlier in the service, but, but as, as Protestants we're, we're really good at knowing that we're saved by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And then we have a tendency to believe that we're initially saved by the Spirit and then He leaves us off on our own to go and try really hard and figure out the rest of the Christian life. But Jesus reveals that even in His perfect life, it was one that was fully reliant upon the empowerment and guided by the Spirit of God. So, so let that be an encouragement to you that if you are struggling with obedience, if you're struggling with evangelism, if you're struggling with knowing the right words to say, if you're even struggling as you come here to worship, if, you, if your attitude is, is wrong, if you're struggling to focus on God, stop trying to fix things yourself and in your own strength. See, God hasn't left you on your own, but he's given you his spirit. The very same spirit that was empowering Jesus, he has given to you. So go directly to him in prayer. Ask for the spirit to guide you, to empower you, and he will hear you. So that was a bit of a tangent there, but it's worth looking into. Because as, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, this, this theme is going to come up again and again, the role of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. So let, let's get back to that quotation from Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. So at the start, I, I asked the question, who is Jesus? And, and all, the, all those people having all different opinions as to who He is, this, this answers it. He's the Jewish Messiah. The, the, the word uh, anointed one there, uh, it can get a bit lost in, in translation. Uh, when, when the Bible speaks of, of God's anointed one, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's Messiah. In, in the New Testament, it, it's Christ. And, and so when, when you read in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, it's, it's not his surname, it's, it's a title. It's, it's Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Jewish Old Testament prophecies it means that he's God's chosen one, chosen to fulfill this specific role. And then we see what the role is as, as we continue through this verse. It says, He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And that's another, another running theme that we see here through the Gospel of Luke, that God re reaches lowly people, the poor, people that of seeming unimportance. He doesn't go straight to the Jewish religious leaders. He doesn't go to the kings and the emperors. He goes to poor people in a town in the middle of nowhere in Galilee. But as, as the gospel progresses, we actually get to see a little bit more of what these terms actually mean, of the giving sight to the blind, of healing the sick, of of reaching the poor. Because if it was just the physically sick and the financially poor, then the question is, are we here today in need of a Messiah? Most of us are pretty well off, well, we're reasonably healthy, especially compared to first century peasants 
living in Nazareth, we're, we're very well off financially. We're, we're not poor, we're not sick, we're not blind, right? But as we continue through this gospel, see that Jesus came to reach the poor, but specifically the poor in spirit. Those who have been humbled by God. When we realise that we have nothing to bring, we have nothing to offer God. See, so many people don't understand what Christians believe. Even, even churchgoers, we're, we're not saved because we're a bunch of good, nice people that like meeting together once a week. We realise that, that, that we have nothing to bring to God. We're bankrupt, but we need His riches. That was a a quote by, by a hard-hitting quote by Jonathan Edwards. He says, "You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary." We're not just spiritually poor; we're we're, we're bankrupt. We we have nothing, but Jesus came with good news, offering perfect salvation for those who are in need and those who recognise their need. And He came to bring liberty to those who are captives. That's not us, right? We're, we're in a free country. We're not captive to anyone, but but spiritually we are captive to our own. Before Christ, we are captive to our own sinful flesh. As I said before, unable to change ourselves, unable to fix ourselves, and we're blind too. We're unable to see our, our predicament, and and that's what's crazy when I when I think about my own life, looking back before I, I fully understood the gospel. I could articulate it. I knew that, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again. But I wasn't aware of the depth of my own sinfulness and my, and my need for a saviour and my need to respond by repenting and, and placing my trust in Jesus. But not only did I not get it, I also wasn't even aware that I didn't get it because I was blind to my own fallen state. But Jesus came to open our eyes, to give us understanding to free us from the power of sin in our lives, and most importantly, to forgive us. So elsewhere in Luke, he uses this term freedom, uh, referring to forgiveness of sins. So we're free because God's judgment no longer hangs over us. And then he ends uh, the the quotation from Isaiah 61, uh, and this is verse 2, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. But then he skips the second part of the verse. When you actually look up Isaiah 61 verse 2, he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he skips, and the day of vengeance of our God. So right now we have God's favour, God's opportunity for salvation. But both of those statements, both of those prophecies are true. Jesus will come and has come to save, but then Jesus will return to judge. And so the people... There. And, and even today for us, we live in between these two events of, of Jesus' salvation and his judgment. So right now, he offers you salvation rather than condemnation. And he offers forgiveness and freedom from sins rather than judgment. That will come later, but right now you have the opportunity to respond. And in this passage, we actually see the different responses to the Messiah. Earlier on in the passage, Luke mentions Jesus preaching around Capernaum. And it says that he was glorified by all as he preached through Galilee. And it's interesting that Luke skips over that to see the, the negative example here. And now in his hometown of Nazareth. It, it, it starts off pretty similar. It sounds pretty good at the start. It says they spoke well of him. 
and marveled at his words. But then they responded by saying, isn't this Joseph's son? This isn't referring to them rejecting claims about the virgin birth or anything like that. It's, it's a bit hard to figure out exactly what they were getting, out, uh, getting at just on its own. Uh, but it helps when we look at what the other Gospels say and then also specifically when we look at how Jesus responded. I think he, he knows their hearts and he knew exactly what they meant by the statement. See, some commentators that I read uh, said that the, the question, isn't this Joseph's son? They read it as a, a positive statement, that they were proud that this Messiah came from their hometown of Nazareth. And other commentators suggest it was a, a negative comment. Uh, and I think we definitely see that if, if you look up this same passage or the same narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you know, they say, isn't this Mary's son? And, and his brothers and sisters are right here with us. Um, and then it says they were offended at his statements. But, but what's interesting is, is when we read Jesus' response, we can see that he knows exactly what they were thinking. Uh, so let, let's look down in verse 23. It says, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Okay, so that line there, the physician, heal yourself, uh, that they weren't suggesting that Jesus was deficient, that he was in need of healing. They're saying, you better look out for your own. Right? You, you healed all those people in Capernaum, you know, all those people, but, but you're one of us. Why, why don't you actually heal and look out for us? So that they weren't excited that God's Messiah has arrived to come and save all people. They only wanted the benefits, and they only wanted the benefits for themselves. We can do the same thing. Only wanting Jesus for the benefits, not, not for his glory. And only wanting the benefits for ourselves. We want God to be merciful to our sins, but to judge all those other people's sins. But in this case, did, did they have reason for it? I mean, he is their Messiah. After all. He is the Jewish Messiah. He came to save his people. But there's a huge misconception that they had and that I think still exists today that in the Old Testament God was only concerned about saving the Jewish people and, and it's only in the New Testament that he changed his mind and all of a sudden decided to save other people. It was actually the opposite. The whole Old Testament, the, the whole reason for the nation of Israel existing was to be a light to the Gentiles, to, to point people to their God and say, come and worship him. And, and, and Jesus gives two Old Testament examples that, that even in the Old Testament, God was merciful to Gentiles. So he gives the example of the widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. There was a, a, a drought for three years and six months, a great famine, but Elijah wasn't sent to them. He was only sent to a widow in Sidon. And then the exact same thing uh, the exact same thing happened again with Elisha. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So this wasn't really a theology lesson that Jesus was giving them about the relationship of, of God between Jews and Gentiles. It, it was a rebuke aimed at them. He's saying, You're just like those people, the widows and the lepers of Israel. 
the prophets of God didn't help them. Instead, they turned to people in Sidon and Syria. He's saying, you, you, you think that you're on the, outside, uh, on the inside, but you're actually on the outside. And he can say this because he knew their hearts. And, and their hearts are, are revealed to us plainly. Uh, in verse 28 it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So they were okay with the Messiah arriving as long as he arrived on their terms. As long as he was only there to save them, not those outsiders. As soon as Jesus wasn't what they wanted, what they demanded, they were willing to kill their own Messiah. And we can do the same today. A lot of people are okay with the idea of Jesus being a path to God. But as soon as you say he is the way and the truth and the life, all of a sudden Jesus is offensive. So we began at the start talking about the identity of Jesus. And many people want to form their own idea of who they think Jesus is. But it's not up for us to decide. Jesus here is clearly explaining who he is. He's the Jewish Messiah, the fulfilment of the Old Testament scriptures. And he came in the power of the Spirit to preach good news to the poor, set the captives free, heal the sick, give sight to the blind, and to bring us to God. Not only do we not get to dictate his identity, we don't get to dictate his mission. Their concept of the Messiah was one who only came to save them. You know, not, not those, those filthy Gentiles. And, and we look at them and scoff and say, oh, you know, they, haven't they ever read John 3.16, God so loved the world? Uh, but, but we're capable of doing the same thing. In, in this case, it was an issue of race. They wanted a God who would only save Jews and not Gentiles. But do we do the same thing? Do we reach out to all people groups? Do we want to see God reach people from all nations, all ethnic backgrounds? Or are there people that put you off that you don't want to see reached through the gospel? Maybe it's not that. Maybe we do it in different ways. We, we desperately want God to reach some people and not others. We want God to forgive our sins but judge those who specifically sin against us. Maybe it's difficult to reach the people, not just who are general sinners out there, but the people who have sinned against you personally. You see, those who have wronged us should be outside the grace of God with no second chances, even though we want God to give us more and more chances time and time again. So, so here's the challenge. The people that have hurt you the most, do, do you pray for them? Not, not just do, do you pray that they would repent so that they would no longer hurt you or no longer annoy you. Not just so that they would realise that they were in the wrong. But do you genuinely pray for them? Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would be merciful to them because he's been so merciful to us. Maybe sometimes it's not about whether the sin is against us, but it's just the sin itself. 
we, we judge people differently depending on what sins they're committing. You know, we, we commit the light sins, whereas it's the others that are committing the really bad sins against God. I wonder if there'd be a difference between, say, a married couple who are unbelievers come in to hear the gospel. Would that be any different than, say, if a gay couple came in to hear the gospel? Equally in need of God's grace. Just the same as us, in desperate need of, of good news. But would we judge people differently? Would we see some people as outside the grace of God, as more unworthy than, than we are? You see, God's law is so high that, that we're not any more worthy. And God's grace is so big that they're not any more out of reach than we were. You know, for, for me, it, it can be the, the, the snarky atheist that raises one too many objections. You know, when they've raised three or four objections in a row, you know, it gets a bit annoying. But then when they raise another one and another one, I just think, oh, they're too far gone. They're too opposed to God. How, how could God possibly change their hearts? It's, it's just one step too far. But we're all in the same predicament. We're, we were exactly the same. The, the only way that we could be saved is God's Spirit working in us and changing us. What about the people that are just a lot of work? People with messy marriages, down and out people struggling with addictions. It's not that we don't want God to save them, it's just we want him to leave us out of it. We're just put off because it'll be all too much hard work. It'll be too hard to get close to them. It's easy to say hi in the street once every couple of weeks, but to invest your life into theirs, to step into that messiness. When there's a cost, do we become less enthused about God reaching them? But we don't get to define who Jesus is. We don't get to define his, his mission. We don't get to say, God, we want you to reach these people, but not those people. So we follow a saviour who came for all peoples. And it's a good thing he did. Because the people that he mentions, the lost, the poor, the captives, the outsiders, the Gentiles, that's us. It, it's a good thing that God didn't stop his mission just there in Nazareth, but he was always intending for his gospel to go out so that all nations would be blessed. And the way Jesus completed his mission of forgiving sinners, of setting us free, of reaching the Gentiles, was to come and die for our sins, the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus isn't a religious teacher or a revolutionary he's the savior of the world and he'd be the savior of you and we know that jesus is who he says he is this is a bold claim that he's made to be the jewish messiah to be the savior of the world but we know that he is who he says he is because he rose again from the dead he's the one who died to save you from your sins to set you free from slavery to sin to reconcile you to God and to bring you into his family. So that, that's such good news when we realise that that's us, when, when we are the ones who are poor in spirit, when we realise that we are actually the ones, we're the captives who need to be set free. We are the blind that need sight. 
We're in need of God's favour and we find it in Jesus. And when we, when we realise that, when we see ourselves in, in this passage, when we're the poor, blind, captive, and Jesus has freed us, when we realise how good and gracious God has been to us, uh, then, then it removes our prejudice. It, it stops us from putting other people in different categories and saying, God could reach us, God could reach me, but he couldn't reach that person, or I don't want him to reach that person. We're all in the same category. And so it allows us to reach everyone with the gospel. So let's do that. Let's not just talk about it, but think about it, talk about it after the service, pray with one another about who you're going to reach with the gospel. Who are the people that you've been neglecting? Who are the people that you see as outside the reach of the grace of God? What can you be doing to, to reach them with the gospel? And if, if you don't know the gospel, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know that you have been saved, that you've been forgiven of your sins, you don't know that you have eternal life, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. All you need to do is, is turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus. Believe in him. And he will save you. When you humble yourself, when you realise that, that I am poor in spirit, I have nothing to bring to God. I am captive to my own sins. Save me. And when, when you cry that out, when you, when you turn to Jesus and ask him to save you, he will, because he is merciful to all people who call upon his name. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you do save the poor, the captive, those who are so far from you, Gentiles. Lord, I was blind. You gave me sight. Lord, and I thank you. I take no credit for my own salvation. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us in, in so many ways. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to love all people around us. To know that no one is beyond uh, the reach of your great mercy. And Lord, help us to have the same attitude towards others around us. Amen.